espionage, violence, all these kind of different things. And at the end of it was the one word, Joshua, which is the intro to our sermon series. But because of our technical problems this morning, you're going to have to listen to me prattle on for a minute. Could we have the first PowerPoint up? Is that working? Here we go. This is the end slide that we got to. So over the next um, seven weeks, we're going to be dipping into the first part of this amazing book of Joshua. We're going to be doing it here on a Sunday mornings, and we're going to be following on with those themes into our small groups during the week. But before we dive into chapter one this morning, I want to set a bit of the scene for Joshua. Because if we don't understand the context of the book, it's a very easy book to misread, and we can get into all kinds of difficulties with it. You don't have to have good eyesight as well this morning. I'm sure you're realising that with this slightly smaller screen than we normally have. So background to the book of Joshua. The book starts with the death of Moses and gives the account of the conquest of Canaan. If you know anything of the backstory to the book of Joshua, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt where they were slaves. They've been wandering for 40 years as a nomadic people through the wilderness. And now, right at the beginning of the book of Joshua, they're on the east side of the Jordan being called by God to go into the promised land. And that's what the book of Joshua picks up. If these kind of things interest you, this is roughly the time period we're covering. I say roughly, it is roughly. 406 BC to 1375 BC. Remember BC works the wrong way round, in case you're wondering how that, that works. The author of the book, it doesn't actually say in the book, it's traditionally thought of as by Joshua, but there are some bits of it that aren't by Joshua because they talk about after Joshua is gone and sort of different times. They're probably edited by other people as well. If this kind of things interests you, and this does interest me, I have to say, our earliest copies of Joshua are from the second century BC in a Greek translation. Why does that interest me? Because it tells us Jesus knew this book. It tells us this book was something that Jesus would have known. And it's historical. It's a historical book. It tells the story of the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites, but it tells it from the perspective of Israel. And it's with the perspective of this is what God was doing through his people at this point. We're going to come across some pretty big questions as we go through. Here's two of them. What does obedience to God look like? That question was a key question for the people of Israel in Joshua's day, and it's a key question for us now, isn't it? What does it mean as Christians to live in the presence of a holy God who calls us to be a people who are set apart? So time and again, we'll keep coming back to that question of obedience. And another big question, is God more powerful than the forces arrayed against his people? As we go through Joshua, we'll find that the people come against all kinds of problems. And they continually have to battle with this question, is God really more powerful than all this? Here in our day today, we live in a world where as Christians, we're marginalised in society. Where the church constantly seems to be playing catch-up with what's going on in our world around. And we have that same question to ask ourselves, is our God really more powerful than all of this? My answer is yes, but we need to keep asking that question, and what does it mean? But before we actually dive into the book, there's one other area that I want us very briefly to look at this morning. Two years ago, we were in Durham, and it was raining, much like it has been now, apart from this was meant to be our summer holiday, and it rained solidly for 48 hours. And we decided to go into the cathedral. Anyone been to Durham Cathedral? Yeah, a really great place to go and visit if you've not. And there was this young couple who were coming out of the cathedral who'd obviously been to a service. And they they were talking to one another. I could hear what they were saying. One of them was saying to the other one, I really like the New Testament reading. It was all about loving people 
I think it must have been something from one of John's letters. You know, it was all about God and his call to love and care. He said, but what about the Old Testament reading with all that violence? How on earth do Christians believe that the God of the violence of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament? I don't know if you've ever had somebody pose that question to you. I think it's perhaps, John, one we should pick up at Tough Questions. How do we square the circle of violence in the Old Testament with the God of love and compassion and tenderness that we find personified through the Lord Jesus Christ? Atheists like Richard Dawkins and the late um, Christopher Hitchens will constantly sort of rail against Christians and say, how can you say this God is the same? So what do we do about it? I'm not going to try and answer that totally this morning, but I'll give us a few pointers. I'm still in a work in progress when it comes to this. I haven't got all the answers, but there are some things, I think, that we can start to say. This is the question. Is the God of this violence really the same as our loving Heavenly Father who sent out Jesus? Just let me read to you a passage from Joshua 8. When Israel had finished slaughtering the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they had pursued them, and when all of them had fallen by the edge of the sword, Israel returned to Ai. Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the sword until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants. Then it goes on. Only the livestock and the spoil of what that city Israel took as their booty according to the word of the Lord that had issued to Joshua. This is God's word that God has told them to do this. And then it goes on. Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins. What do we do with that? And that's one of many passages I could have used in Joshua. You see, this book has been, I believe, very wrongly used to justify violence through the years. You know, people like the Crusaders, people um, like the colonialists in the last three or four centuries have said, actually, God wills violence and war against people who aren't Christians. What do we do with this type of violence? It's tricky. Very difficult. Perhaps the traditional answer is to say that actually... This is all about holiness. That God's people are called to dwell under the law in holiness. And how could they live in holiness when surrounded by people who are burning children as sacrifices and doing horrendous things? That is part of the answer, but I think there are a few more things we can say this morning. You know, Joshua's world was full of violence. Everybody was, was in, implicated in this sort of violence. There were very small kingdoms around Israel at this point possibly about half the size of Cheshire, that sort of size. And they were constantly battling against one another. So if you lived in that world, you lived in a world of violence. To us, you know, we live in a world of electricity, don't we? We've experienced the effects of electricity this morning in a number of different ways, not all positive. But to say to us, experience life outside of electricity would be incredibly difficult because it's just part of our life. Violence was part of Joshua's world. And God would still work within that violence. You know, God will work in whatever world we live. And even out of evil, God will bring forth his light. What does it say in Romans 5, verse 8? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still living in the mess of the violence that is of our own making, Christ, God, will reach into us and pursue us. Isn't that incredible? You know, that Jesus doesn't wait until we think we're sorted out before he reaches down and pursues us but he actually reaches down into the mess of human experience. The people of Israel are already a freed people. So the Exodus was all about God 
um, liberating his people from slavery. And part of the story of Joshua is that God will not allow, again, this, uh, allow his people to be enslaved by the chariots and horses and the vehicles of war of the other nations. And I think finally, we'll come up against this as a topic as we go through this book, but the last thing I want to say before we move on. You know, God is always moving his people towards peace and harmony. Here, this is towards a nation who will live at peace, under the law, under the rule of God. But Joshua is just one piece of the jigsaw that points us towards Jesus. It's a very difficult time of history, and we have to read it in that context. So the question to us, would it be right to live in violence now as Christians? Is there a case for Christians to put people to the sword or the gun because they don't believe in Jesus? I would say absolutely and categorically no. Absolutely not. Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. And we have the blessings in Christ of knowing the full revelation of God's purposes. But that's the background for Joshua. That's a lot of information that we would be filled with your purposes. Lord, have your will amongst us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, please sit down. If you've got a Bible there in front of your church Bible, you might want to turn to page 206. We're going to read chapter 1 of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land that I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan, here to go and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. You are to help them. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land 
that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded, as we will do, and wherever you are sending us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, is to be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's just briefly pray again, shall we? Be strong and courageous. Loving God, we just acknowledge your call is to be strong in our faith in you this morning. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that it will take deep root in our hearts, that we may be changed and transformed by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a friend when I was at school who was an absolutely atrocious timekeeper. Um, he was late for everything. He came in late for school. He was often in detention for being late. He would be late going home. You know one of these people who everyone else has gone and he's still faffing, doing something in his locker that you can't quite sure what he was doing. And everything about him and his whole family was late. Always late. There was once a time when I think I was about 12 or 13. I was only quite little when I was 12 or 13. And I'd agreed to meet him in Stockport. I lived in Stockport growing up. So that was a natural place to meet. And we were going to do what young teenagers, I presume, still do. We're about that stage where we're about to find out with um, Timothy. But we would go into Stockport, get a McDonald's, and spend whatever money we had on things. And that was the aim of the day. So we'd agreed to meet at a certain time. Let's say it was one o'clock. I can't remember the exact time. I got the train down into Stockport. And I'm stood there waiting at the place we'd agreed to wait. Ten minutes goes past. No sign of him. Twenty minutes goes past. Still no sign of him. Half an hour goes past. Still no sign of him. What do you do in those situations? Well, you you think that you're wrong, don't you? You think, we must have agreed to wait somewhere else. He must be around the corner. So I went for a walk. Could I find him? No, I couldn't find him. Looking at my age, you'll realize that there were no mobile phones during this era of history. So I couldn't get in touch with him. I couldn't text him. I couldn't message him. I found a phone box and rung his house. There was an answer phone, but nobody was there. An hour and a half later, he rolls up. No apology, no excuses, no sadness that he'd left this 12, 13-year-old terrified boy stood in the vast expanse of Stockport. But you know, in life, we're used to promises being broken, aren't we? We're used to people who say one thing, then doing another. We're used to the, the problems of waiting for things that we're not quite sure whether they will ever happen or not. Israel, as a people, were no stranger to waiting. They were no stranger to waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Four centuries earlier, at the time of Abraham, God had made a covenant with Abraham to say, I will give you this land, the land that Joshua is now about to inhabit. You can read about it. Go home if you you don't want to go out for a walk in the rain and read Genesis 12 to 15. You can read all about it. And God promises to make Abraham a great nation. And then there are specific promises as to the land they will, that they will inhabit. We've already talked about some of the account of what happens before we get to Joshua, the 40 years in the wilderness, the freedom from slavery. 
And this is now where we pick up Joshua chapter 1. So let's first of all look at the promises of God we find in this passage. You know, some of God's promises are for today, aren't they? As we read our Bible, some things apply directly to us now, where other things are still a way off. What has Jesus promised to do? Return. It's not happened yet. But he will do. Because God's promises are just certainties that we can rely on that sometimes haven't yet come to pass. Jesus will return. What we find in verses 2 to 4, if you've got your Bible there, is the reiteration of the promises of land that are to be given. And it's a great area of land. If ever you look at this on a map, it covers an enormous area of the Middle East. And it's a promise that is far bigger than Joshua in his natural human capacity of the leader of this nomadic bunch of people could ever realise. And to me, it's just a reminder, you know, if our vision is something that we can do by ourselves, we need a bigger vision. If our vision as a church is something that we sit comfortably under and say, oh, this will be fine, we can just get on and do it, then actually I would suggest that that's not God's vision to us. Because when God calls his people to step out, we have to step out needing him. Otherwise, the vision is probably something of our own making. And then we get to the context of the land promise in verses 5 and 6. And the land promise actually sits under this other promise. If you've got your Bible there, look at verse 5. It says, No one will be able to stand against you. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. The promise of land is underpinned by the promise of presence. It's really important we remember that. The promise of land is underpinned by the promise of presence. If you were here last week, Chris was talking about money, and at one point in his um, message, he held up a £10 note that I said was a gift to me. He still hasn't given it me, but there's time for him to, to come through on that one. If you've got a, a note in front of you, if you can find a bank note, if you have a look at it, it says on it, I promise to pay. It has on it a promise that makes the note valuable. You know, if I were to go and take a £10 note and go outside there and photocopy it and produce 200 £10 notes that are photocopied, and then say I went into Warrington tomorrow morning and went and did my shopping and started trying to pay with these £10 notes, what would happen? I'd probably get arrested for a start. So I'm not going to try it just to see. <clears throat> but they'd be worthless, wouldn't they? Because they're not underpinned by anything of value. Whereas the £10 note is underpinned by the value that the Bank of England gives it. See, the promise of land is underpinned by the value of God who gives his presence. As the book continues, we find actually what happens is the promises of land sometimes don't quite get fulfilled because the Israelites will not stand on the promise of presence. They will do anything but live with the holiness of God in their midst. And the promise of presence actually gets watered down as they bring in idols and all kinds of other stuff. So what do we do with this for us as a church, for us as individuals? Well, you know, God hasn't promised us physical land as a church. There are no promises in the scripture of physical land for the church. We don't stand on the edge of the Mersey laying claim to Woolston. That is not what we should be doing. But God has given the church vision, hasn't he? <clears throat> What's the calling of the church of every age? To make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the promise for the church in every age? Go on. Somewhere. Yeah, what was that? I am with you always. 
One specifically, down that theme, one specifically for the church. You can sing it in a Graham Kendrick song if you really want. That's the one. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. If you like, for us as a church, that is our land promise. That is the promise that if we go out in obedience with the call of the gospel, that the church will be built. Our church vision sits underneath that. It sits underneath what God is calling us to do. We see the promises of land, if you like, our land promise, or the land promise that was with the people of Israel, doesn't get very far unless we live within the promises of presence. Unless we acknowledge our dependency on God and practice his presence in our midst. Over the the prayer week of the last week, um, I think it started off on the the Sunday at the prayer breakfast. We used it on Sunday night last week, and it's been used throughout the week. Was perhaps the the best known of all the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And there's the promise in that Psalm that even to the point of the shadow of death, even to death itself, where is God's presence? It's with us. It continues right the way through if we will walk with him. And it just made me think, actually, you know, how much of our prayer, I think Chris has already alluded to this this morning, is based on the kinds of things that actually we want to happen rather than actually just being available for God and acknowledging God's presence and underpinning of our life. God will not leave us or forsake us. God will not abandon us If we are obedient and faithful to him as a church, he will go with us and the land promises will keep growing and keep coming to pass. I wonder if we spend enough time focusing on that promise of presence. Do we spend enough time? Today, I don't know where you're all up to in your life. You may have had an absolute nightmare of a week and you may have actually realised that some of your worst fears are going to come out in your life at the moment. You may just need to hear this morning that God is with you. That the promise of presence stands even in that darkness. That even in that awful place where fears are coming through, God promises, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. In this coming week, you may find yourself in the doctor's waiting room wondering what on earth is going to happen. The promises of God remain. The promise of presence remains. Or it may be the flip side, you may experience some totally unexpected joy in your life. That can sometimes be as difficult to cope with as as fear and the other things. But actually God says even there, by by the green pastures, in the still waters, I am with you. You know, as a church, as we pray and dream of the future we believe that God is calling us to, we need to rest in God's presence first of all. Let's move on. Obedience. Obedience is basically the conviction that God is right and then do something about it. Verse 6, if you look at the Bible, we've got the first of the, the four calls to be strong and courageous. It's either be strong and courageous or be strong and very courageous. It comes in different ways. And verse 7, the call is issued again and then at the end of verse 9. And it's interesting that the second and third uses of this call are not really to do with the land promise but to do with the promise of presence. Be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right 
or to the left? Do you remember that question I asked right at the beginning? What does it mean to live obediently to God? What does it mean to live in the presence of a holy God in 2017? What does it mean to be obedient to God in our life today? You know, if we are people who want to be people of God's presence, then we need to be obedient to what God calls us to be like. 1 Peter 1 verses 15 and 16. Just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. Matthew 5 verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see how Jesus sets the bar right up here? Follow me, be obedient to me, do things my way. You know, I think we can get so taken up with doing, can't we? You know, even as a church, we can be thinking, what is God calling us to do? And I wonder whether sometimes we actually just need to take a step back and say, what is God calling us to be? What is God calling us to be? How are we to react in the midst of the presence of a holy God? How's your inner life today? This is not a question you can ask anybody else. It's only a question you can ask yourself. When you turn the lights off at night, and in those moments before you drop off to sleep, or if you awake in the middle of the night, what's going on? Is the good stuff going on? Or are there still desires in your heart that actually you'd rather remain hidden in the darkness? How is your inner life? Are we being transformed? Do we still need to hear that call to be holy and to ask for the Holy Spirit's power and strength to enable us to live out a godly life? Are we an obedient people? Verse 8, it says, meditate on it day and night. That's talking about the law of Moses. And then there comes a promise. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The promise of prosperity and success here is not the promise of being top of your career ladder, of having all the wealth you want, of being able to live you know, with health and all the rest of it for the whole of your life. It's not that kind of promise at all. That is not the kind of promise God, uh, prosperity God calls his people to. And if we try and use those as the measurements of prosperity, it's like trying to measure distance in grams. You know, you're just using the wrong measurement. We need to measure it in something else. So what is God talking about? Well, the prosperity of our life before God is when we're saying, God, you are right, and I will live with your priorities. And because I do that, I will start to see the blessings of God bursting out in my life. You know, those fruits of the Spirit, that patience, that love, that kindness, all those kind of things. I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, actually, if I had a choice, now this is not because I'm being super spiritual or anything like that. This is just based on hard experience. If I had a choice of being free from sin, and being able to live in freedom and free from guilt, knowing what Jesus has done on the cross for me, or of having all the wealth that the world has to offer, and all the human prosperity that I could possibly have. I know which I choose. I'll choose the former. Because I know what the pain is of just living in the latter without being able to deal with the former. Surely that is the kind of prosperity that God calls his people to. A prosperity of well-being internally, of knowing who we are in Christ, of having that kind of life that just oozes the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the kind of life we want? Be obedient. Be holy as I am holy. We better look at this call, haven't we, to be strong and courageous. 
I'm suggesting that this is actually a coming together of these two things. A presence and obedience. You know, we talk quite a lot as Christians about taking a stand on things. It, it may be, oh, we've got to stand on the gospel, we've got to stand on God's word, we, we stand on firm on some ethical issue, and that's all right and, and good. But I just want to unpack that in a moment. But last weekend, I was um, doing what is probably not one of my favourite jobs, but I was doing it anyway, and it's building flat pack furniture. Anyone enjoy flat pack furniture? Sam, you can come and build it next time, I need some doing. The reason I don't particularly enjoy it is because it means following instructions, and me and instructions are a bit on a different page somehow. But actually, I did really well last week, and I had three things to build, and I built them all, and they all worked. And I looked at them, and I'd actually finished them according to the instructions. I had cuts on my knees because I'd been scrambling around on the floor for so long, and then Claire comes in, and I'm feeling really pleased with myself. I'm feeling very proud in a kind of humble way. And I show Claire the results of my labours, and she goes, great. Whoopie-doo, you know, you've managed to follow some instructions and build a bed. You know, do you want a medal? Is it that, you know, that kind of thing. It's not as if I'd gone into the forest and cut down a tree and with my own hands sawn this wood and turned it into a bed. That was not what had happened. I'd followed some pretty basic instructions and managed to do what it said. That's normal, isn't it? Being able to follow basic instructions for most of us. It's something we can probably do on a day-to-day basis. I think there is a pitfall for us as Christians when we read the call to be strong and courageous that we apply it to areas that we can do quite naturally anyway. If I say, Lord, help me to stand up for gospel's truth and to proclaim you as Lord, really easy for me to do that this morning when I'm sat here, stood here in front of you. The call to be strong and courageous, though, goes to those areas where actually there is a battle raging. How much harder is it to say Jesus is Lord and to give our hope for what we have in the gospel when we're surrounded by people who are not only anti the gospel, but antagonistic towards it. Surely that is where the call to be strong and courageous comes in. It's easy to say Jesus is the light of the world, but for those of us who are parents, perhaps this week if you've had an invite coming home for a Halloween party, it's much harder to say actually we stand on the truth of Jesus as light of the world when there are things that would take our young people off on different tangents. It's easy for us to say, Lord, help me to be ethical, uh, to be biblical in the view of my ethics. Now, I was listening to something on the radio the other day about issues of gender fluidity and transgender. John, it's another thing we need to put on the list for for tough questions. Um, Now, that's easy for me to say, let's let's take a biblical stance on this, because that isn't my issue. But if I was battling against that and looking at what does the Bible say, and that was a real issue for me, the call then goes out to be strong and courageous is a very, very different one. You see, the call for Joshua to be strong and courageous was actually dead easy on the east of the Jordan. The enemies weren't there. It's easy to be strong and courageous when there's nothing going on. It's a lot more difficult when you cross through the Jordan, get onto the other side, and there the enemies are going to surround you and try and defeat you at every call. If the call of God to be strong and courageous actually starts to mean something to us when we're battling, not when we're just sort of sauntering around, finding things easy. You You may be here today and actually... You're battling in your marriage. Things might not be good at the moment if you're married and you may be really struggling. And the call goes out from the Lord, be strong and courageous. Be obedient. Keep doing what I have called you to do. 
You may be battling today with your own sexual desires when they are being pulled outside of God's revealed will for you. And the Lord says, be strong and courageous. Read my word. Be obedient to my call. You may be battling with your own feelings of revenge or resentment towards somebody. And the Lord says, be strong and courageous. We hear Jesus say, forgives not seven times, but 70 times seven. That doesn't mean after 490 you stop. But you just keep forgiving and forgiving. That takes courage. That takes strength. The other week we had to have some work done, uh, some building work done, and the builder came to me and said, well, it's X amount cash, or if you need a VAT receipt, it's 20% more. Now, thankfully, for us, that wasn't a massive issue. I knew we needed to pay that tax. You know, I knew that's what God calls us to do, to be honest and transparent in how we use our money. Now, that wasn't an issue because the bill had come in under what I was expecting it to be. So it was still within budget, even with paying the VAT. But supposing that extra money had tipped us over and it meant we couldn't feed our two boys for two weeks. What does the call to be strong and courageous mean when actually we're battling against something and we're taking a stand on something that actually means something and impacts us? Difficult. The call to be strong and courageous is the call to go into the battles that lie ahead. But with the strength that says, God, you are right... I will do it your way because, God, I trust in your promises of presence. That if I go forward, I know you are with me and that I will do it in the way that you have called me to. So how can we do this? Does being strong and courageous make every problem immediately be sorted and everything go away? Absolutely not. That would be a very naive sort of thing to suggest. But what it does mean is that by being strong and courageous, we root ourselves in the presence of God and know that whatever we go into, whatever we face, that God goes there with us. So I want to leave us with two questions this morning, aware that time is going on. Firstly, this is a question to us as a church. We've been talking a lot about our vision recently, about the sense that God may be calling us to plant another congregation, and also the questions about what do we do with this building here. What does it mean for us as a church to be strong and courageous as we look forward? What does it mean for us? I'm not giving you the answer now. I'm just posing the question. And what does it mean individually for us in light of that corporate sense of vision? How do I be strong and courageous as part of that corporate vision? So just a couple of things to think about on that. But I also want to ask us a question about this individually. Because to leave this passage at a church response, I think actually doesn't do enough with what is going on here. This is a personal call to Joshua initially. Where are the battle lines in your life at the moment? Are they in relationships? Family relationships? Relationships with friends? In your marriage? Where are they? What is God calling you to do by being strong and courageous? I'm not going to answer that question for you. You need to go away and seek the Lord. But what does that mean in your setting? What does it mean to trust on the promises of presence and to step out being strong and courageous, knowing that God is with you and calls you to follow him? Will you pray for the power this morning to be strong and courageous? 
Will you do it? I'm actually going to ask us to do something physical to respond to this. It's nothing too dramatic. Don't, you don't need to panic. But I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And if you want to pray that prayer for strength and courage in whatever battle you're facing this week, I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up. The rest of us will shut our eyes so we don't need to look round and see who's doing it. I'm going to put my hand up so that I'll just pray for myself if nobody wants to join me. But if you do want to pray for an area of your life where you need strength and courage and the presence of God to go with you, can I pray for you now? So let's close our eyes. And if that's you, put your hand up and we'll all join together in those prayers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so many of us this week will face areas of our life where we need strength and courage. Lord, I want to thank you that in you we are not slaves to fear. Thank you that we are free. Thank you that we can walk in our life in obedience to you. And Lord, I want to pray by your Holy Spirit that in whatever situations we are facing this week, you will give us the great strength and the great courage to do things your way. You call us to be holy as you are holy. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you make us a people of your presence and of your courage and of your strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.